Hi, I'm Liana Downey, founder of Common Ground on Climate, and I think we can be having better conversations about Australia's future, conversations that bring us together to protect what we have. On this podcast, we're talking to a wide range of people to understand more about where we are, how we got here, and we're on the hunt for one big idea to safeguard Australia's environmental and economic future that we can all get behind. So join us and let's build common ground on climate together. On today's episode, we welcome Elisa DeVitt, partner and head of climate change at the law firm Norton Rose Fulbright in Australia. She's also the director of Beyond Zero Emissions, the chair of the Carbon Market Institute, and also a director of Grampians Wimera Mallee Water Corporation. Welcome to the show, Elisa. Thanks, Liana. I'm going to start with a question that I ask everybody. If you could wave a magic wand, what would Australia look and feel like in 20 years? So I essentially have one um, word to answer that question, which is greener. And I mean green in all senses of the word. A greener environment in terms of a greener physical environment, but a greener environment in terms of a, a more sustainable world that we'll be living in. So very much looking at a world that has us transitioning to net zero and how that needs to be incorporated into both the living environment but also particularly the economy. I think sometimes when people hear the phrase greener or more sustainable, it has connotations for them of living in a much rougher way, not being able to use your dryer, having to walk everywhere, having to grow your own vegetables. Is that how you see things? No, no. So my vision is still having us maintain exactly the same standard of living that we currently enjoy and indeed ensuring that we get greater equity as well moving forward, so less divide between those who have and and those who don't have. But essentially what we need to do is within our existing both built environment and the economy, we need to incorporate changes to enable us to operate in a more sustainable, lower carbon, lower emissions way. So I don't at all see us having to change our lifestyle. That's not going to be acceptable to the bulk of people. We're going to have to find a way to transition the economy, transition all of the built environment around us to maintain and and improve people's standard of livings, but in a way that obviously achieves that net zero or low carbon footprint in the longer term. So given that aspiration to maintain our current lifestyle, How optimistic do you feel about our capacity to do that, given the technology that's available today or that is emerging? Do you think it's feasible to to get to the world that you've described? Look, it's going to be extremely challenging. And I think we have to acknowledge we've actually only got a very short time frame, a very short window if we want to do this. So the science is basically saying to us that we need to get to net zero by 2050 and and the global community has accepted that. That is 30 years away and the transition and the transformation that I'm envisaging is huge in terms of what needs to be done within that timescale. So I think I'm optimistic in terms of the ingenuity of the human race and what we've been able to achieve so far. And I think particularly the greatest example of that is how we've come out of COVID or not come out of it yet, but what we've done to respond to COVID. So clearly you're being able to expedite the development and manufacture of vaccines 
and shortening that time frame gives us an example of how quickly the world, if it has a collective problem to address, can respond. So that gives me some optimism, but I'm not at all saying that it is not going to be an extremely daunting and challenging task to do that transformation, which needs to be done at a global level but also very much bringing it down to a much more personal level. There is a huge amount of change that needs to happen to get to net zero. And as I say, the timing is such that we need to be acting extremely quickly, like we have no time to waste. The next 10 years is particularly critical in terms of really push starting that transformation. It's going to require this concerted effort from all players to ensure we can achieve that ultimate objective. Big stuff. Indeed. Yep. But I think it's interesting, your point about room for optimism. We've seen things that we would never have thought possible in terms of the lead time. And your example of the vaccine is a fascinating one. If you look at how long it's taken to develop vaccines for other big diseases, it's been a lot longer. Yeah. There's no doubt that technology is going to be key in this transformation. And so there needs to be a huge push into that area. And the other big aspect is what we call drawdown or negative emissions, which is actually being able to suck emissions out of the atmosphere, which is also going to be essential if we're going to achieve our overall temperature goal in limitations. It's really interesting to hear about that idea of taking emissions out of the atmosphere that are already there. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the ways in which that's possible? Look, so at its simplest, it really does mean you are, if you like, vacuuming the greenhouse gas emissions out of the air and you are doing something with those emissions. So you might be converting it to a different form of output or you are capturing it and essentially storing it. So that would mean potentially injecting it into the earth, so underground or under the seabed. There are more research and development projects underway in the world at the moment to look at how we can get that technology working at scale. I think it's still some way off. Obviously, the global community has been looking at the idea of carbon capture and storage now for many years, and we are making progress, but it's been pretty slow to date and certainly the one barrier is getting it to commercialization. So getting it to be economically feasible to use on a widespread scale. But if the intention is, and if the world needs to continue to use some form of fossil fuels moving forward, then it's going to be essential that we have this ability to capture the carbon that's generated from the use of those fuels. I think it's definitely an area where there's room for more investment, probably definitely room for more research and development, but it's a critical component of the overall picture. It's really interesting to hear you talk about it. It's funny, I've always thought there was something a bit sci-fi, a bit wacky about the idea of vacuuming them up and sticking them under the ground, but as you were talking, I was reflecting on the fact that's where they were to start with. It's not that we're making new carbon dioxide it's that we've taken the carbon dioxide that's been buried underground and we're releasing it by burning it and so in a way it's putting it back where it was reversing (laughs) exactly reversing what we've been doing and certainly there can be concerns about the environmental impacts of doing that but there also is evidence that it can be done safely and as I say I think it is going to be an essential tool as part of the overall suite of tools 
to get us to our goal of net zero by 2050. You also talked about the need for it to come down the cost curve and for it to get cheaper and more feasible. One of the things that has been interesting as I've been talking to people is the extent to which even though we know that the more you use something, the more of it you make, the cheaper it becomes, people have still been taken aback by the speed at which with solar has become really cheap. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Is that something that you've heard and observed? Yes, certainly that that is the case. The facts speak for themselves that solar has dramatically come down that cost curve in ways that were probably unanticipated even say 10 years ago and I guess the hope and expectation is that we'll see similar kinds of responses to other forms of technology in terms of becoming much cheaper to use and the technology improving so obviously one area where there is a big focus and which will be essential is batteries particularly the the need to have the ability to store electricity from renewable sources and and to have that in a kind of dispatchable form and that's particularly the case if we're going to move to an almost 100% renewable energy grid which longer term will need to be the aspiration to remove all forms of fossil fuels out of it. The other big area of interest which is still at a very early stage though is hydrogen And there's a huge focus on how we can get research and development happening in in that space and and seeing that as, I guess, perhaps a white knight. Now, whether that's um, realistic or not certainly remains to be seen. But we know that the government and industry are hugely focusing on the opportunities from hydrogen. And then, of course, there's electric vehicles, which also still, and that kind of links into the cost curve of batteries, but the growth needed in that space will also need to be backed by a reduction in in the cost of electric vehicles. So yeah, a number of different areas where it's hoped, I guess, that's a similar example to that, to which we've seen um, come out of solar technology will play out. You've got me thinking about a few different things. The first is just for people who may not have thought about it in detail, just stepping back and explaining what you are talking about with the need for batteries. So the difference with coal or gas is that you generate electricity from it by burning it, and then there's other processes that happen off the back of it, but you can do that whenever you want to. But solar or wind come when the sun is shining or the wind is blowing. You can't have it just when you want it. And so the importance of batteries, as I understand it, is that you can take it when it's generated and then you can store it for when you need it, which might be when you want to have a shower late at night at 10pm and the sun's not shining. Yeah, so the main distinction is that, uh, and the word that's used is dispatchable, fossil fuel generation is there all the time. As you say, it's not dependent upon the wind blowing or the sun shining and there's no issues about it being able to be provided 24-7, whereas with renewable energy, you don't have the same dispatchabilities. If we're going to be able to rely on that as our primary energy source for electricity, we need to find a way to store the electricity so that when the wind turbines aren't moving and there's no sun, that that electricity is still available. And look, we have seen batteries being used very effectively to achieve that. The best example is in South Australia with the Tesla battery 
that was um, put in a couple of years ago, and that has performed exactly that function to stabilise the grid and to provide that backup when the renewable energy is available. That makes sense. And so it's dispatching in the way that you'd dispatch a parcel from a depot. So it's sending it out. It's sending the electricity out to homes when they need it. Is that right? That's exactly right, yeah. So the other thing that you got me thinking about was the role of government. And I think some people would say, if these things are viable technologies, why can't we just leave it to the market and they'll work it out themselves? Isn't that the way things normally work? But the role of government here, and we've seen this with solar, as I understand it, is about stimulating demand so that we can get down that learning curve much more rapidly because we don't have time to lose. There's different ways that government can play a role. There is the ability to use public funds to either incentivise take-up of these new greener technologies or to give, for example, research and development funding to the companies that are inventing or, or working on these technologies. But that's only one approach. It's my view that kind of what you actually need is you need the overarching goal to be set, to my mind, and this is certainly the way that most other countries in the world are going, we need to have a net zero target by 2050 or whatever appropriate date is chosen to, if you like, set the goalpost and set the long-term goal of where we need to get to. And we know that most other countries are moving towards or have moved towards enshrining net zero by 2050 as either a legislated goal or a policy goal. And there's a reason for doing that. The reason is to set the signal for businesses to where we need to end up. And it's certainly my view that's a really important kind of tool that the government can use as part of their suite of of mechanisms or tools in this space. But it's not just that aspect. It's also potentially looking at whether you are just going to use a market to achieve that objective or whether you need some other levers or drivers. And so the obvious one that government can use is regulation to actually mandate change. But there is the ability to use a market to affect that change. And I guess the most important or or the most valuable tool that I think there is in that context is the introduction of a carbon price, which clearly is something that the current government has not supported for some time, but I think is would be a very valuable um, mechanism to help us achieve that longer term goal. Which other countries have a carbon price that you're aware of? So there's a carbon price throughout Europe. As you know, the UK came out of Europe last year, but the UK is moving towards implementing its own carbon price. There's a carbon price operating in South Korea, in New Zealand. A number of countries are looking at implementing a carbon price. There are a number of different states in the US that actually have their own carbon price. And then across Canada as well, there are also a number of schemes. There is currently a carbon price in operation in a number of different areas within the world. What we don't have as yet is a fully functioning international market because it's a bit of a patchwork at the moment, but certainly that is the longer term intention under the Paris Agreement. 
the idea is that we will have an, an international carbon market operating so that essentially countries can seek to achieve their emission reduction targets at the lowest cost. That's the whole idea about using the mechanism to facilitate this transition, that we look at how we can reduce emissions or sequester carbon at that low, lowest cost, and then we work up the cost curve. And that is, I guess, an approach that has a lot of policy and economic support for it in, in terms of a way of addressing and tackling climate change. So in Australia, as you said, it's something we've dallied with but haven't stuck to. And I think a lot of the discussion that was in the public arena about the idea of a carbon tax was almost this sense that it was a tax on us as individuals, when in fact it's a price on pollution, isn't it? It's a price on the greenhouse gas emissions. It's also, it's not just carbon, is it? It's carbon dioxide and methane and nitrous oxide. So there's some other pollutants that are also really powerful greenhouse gases. Yeah, yeah. So as you say, there's a number of gases that form the totality of greenhouse gases. And you're also correct that it was portrayed as a price that we would all individually have to wear, but the reality is it's a price that would flow through the economy. And the idea of putting a price on goods or services or products that have a higher emissions footprint is that ultimately you are going to change consumer behavior. So if you make those types of materials more expensive because you're flowing through a a carbon price, you're factoring in the cost of those externalities, then the idea is that consumer behavior and, and business decisions will be made to choose materials or products or goods that have a lower carbon footprint because then they should in theory have a lower cost so that's the idea of of putting in place that carbon price and as i say the way it should work is that you look at doing projects or making reductions that are the cheapest to make and then you work your way up the cost curve and certainly that's what we've seen in other countries that have implemented this kind of arrangement so in europe what we've seen is that carbon price gradually increase over time as all of the cheaper ways of reducing emissions are utilised and then you need to move to more expensive ways of reducing emissions. But the idea is it's an economic transition that kind of flows through the economy where that price is being passed on, but it's not a direct tax, if you like, at at an individual level and it does influence then consumer behaviour and consumer choices. You've talked a little bit about how we are different to other countries in our current policies. What else can you tell us about where we are in Australia at the moment in terms of our climate change action? What are we doing and what are we not doing? Yeah, so if we start at a Commonwealth level, we did have a renewable energy scheme, which has to some extent been a very effective tool in in driving more renewable take-up. But in terms of the sectors that are broader than just the electricity sector, at the moment, we don't have any mechanism which mandates emission reductions across those sectors. So what we do have is a government-funded scheme where the government will agree to purchase emission reductions that are generated, but that is ironically a taxpayer 
funded approach to how we address this issue. So we have a thing called the Emissions Reduction Fund, which buys credits that come out of projects being undertaken on the land or, or within facilities that reduce emissions or sequester carbon. And we have seen quite a lot of projects come forward under that scheme, but it is a voluntary scheme. So you're not required to take part in it. Certainly largest emitters are not required to undertake these projects. If they do so, it's more on a voluntary basis. So we have another um, mechanism, which is called the safeguard mechanism, which is a tool that applies to our largest emitters. But the way that this mechanism currently operates is it essentially allows those emitters to maintain their status quo. So they get set a baseline of emissions, which they're not allowed to go over. That baseline is normally worked out on the basis of historical emissions. And then provided those emitters don't go over that baseline, they're not required to do anything else. If they do go over their baseline, then they can go and purchase those credits that I spoke about from the carbon projects. But really, at the moment, that's all we have. So it allows a status quo situation that doesn't have any driver to have companies start to look at how they reduce emissions to achieve reduction targets. So I guess the other thing perhaps to note when we're looking at the Commonwealth level is what I spoke about earlier, which is other countries having net zero targets um, and commitments. The other thing that many countries have done because they've had to do this under the Paris Agreement is to set interim targets. So just as a comparator, Australia's current interim target for 2030 under um, the Paris Agreement is a 26 to 28% reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. Whereas, for example, the UK recently announced that it was setting a 2030 target of 78% reduction. And even the US has upped its target significantly. So it recently announced that it's moving to a 50 to 52% reduction target by 2030. So you can see if you compare Australia to some of those other countries, we're certainly not being as, we're not being as ambitious as perhaps we could be. So the government, rather than, I guess, deciding that it needs to regulate emissions reductions has taken a different approach, which is to look at, well, how do we address this from a technology viewpoint? So its approach is really to say, we're not going to you know, regulate or, or tax our way through this. What we're going to do is look at ways of incentivizing the technology that we'll need to enable this transition to occur. So the government released a technology roadmap, which sets out a number of key priority areas, one being hydrogen, another being soil carbon, that it is going to direct its resources to over the coming years. The other thing to bear in mind is that there's also a lot of action being taken at a state level. So pretty much every state and territory in Australia now has committed to a net zero target. Some of those targets have been enshrined in legislation. And many of those states and territories have now interim targets. And indeed, Victoria has just announced its own interim targets, which are very ambitious, of around 50% by 2030. So as you can see, we're 
doubling of what the Commonwealth target currently is. And many of the states and territories also have support or other mechanisms to encourage renewable energy as well. And indeed, many of them are now moving towards support for the carbon projects that I spoke about earlier. So land-based carbon projects where you're essentially reducing emissions across our agriculture sector or storing the carbon in living matter. So whether that's vegetation or in the soil. What's the kind of legal work that happens in the climate change space? So very much... In recent times, one of the key areas that we've been looking at for clients is really the kind of broad concept of climate risk. What does climate change look like to them and their organisation, and in particular, what's on the horizon in terms of new regulations or new policies that could impact on their business activities? And that risk might be looking at anything from reputational risk to to pure legal risk. So are they at risk of litigation? Where where would that litigation come from? What kind of claims might be made um, against them? And another big area which has also received increasing focus over recent times is what disclosure is being made. So there was some work done by what's called the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, but essentially that set out a series of recommendations about what companies should be doing to assess climate risk, but then how they should be disclosing that assessment, and in particular, how they should be doing scenario planning to understand what the long-term implications of climate change will be for their business, both from a physical risk point of view in terms of actual weather events impacting on business operations, but also climate risk from a transitional point of view, which is very much that looking ahead to see what new policies, regulations, mechanisms, etc., will be made to ensure that emissions are reduced over time. The other big part of my practice is assisting clients to do carbon projects. So that's projects under the scheme, which we call the Emissions Reduction Fund, but is enshrined in legislation, which is known as the Carbon Farming Initiative Act. And that is a scheme that allows companies to go out and do different types of projects to reduce emissions and then generate credits from that activity, which they can either sell to the government or sell to other entities who might be looking to offset their own emissions. And those carbon projects might be anything from capturing the landfill gas that's coming out of a landfill or planting new trees or not cutting trees down or storing carbon in the soil through changed agricultural practices. There's a variety of different types of activities that can be accredited under the scheme and we really assist along that whole journey of getting a project approved and then implementing it, generating the credits and then selling the credits. So you talked about some of those carbon farming projects as having an agricultural context. Are we seeing a lot of farmers in Australia add these projects to their existing program of work? Yes, we are actually. So the greatest take up so far has been in parts of New South Wales but particularly Queensland and WA is where the majority of projects have been registered so far. And the most common project type that is being taken up is essentially where farmers decide that they can 
take an area of their land maybe where the agricultural productivity is not that high and allow that land to naturally regenerate. So it might have been previously cropped or had animals grazing on it. And essentially what the farmers will do is allow that land to naturally regenerate, to take the animals off and to allow carbon to be stored through that vegetation. So that's been a very popular project activity and a lot of agricultural properties have taken up that option. We are moving towards seeing more tree planting take place on agricultural land, but obviously that is dependent upon access to water. And so um, rainfall is a very important aspect in terms of the ability for those projects to be rolled out. But there are different ways of actually reducing emissions in an agricultural sense. There's also the ability to take the methane emissions out of, for example, cows, or to look at ways of dealing with manure that comes out of livestock as well and again removing those methane emissions. So you've talked about some ways in which there's additional income for farmers at the moment through some of these projects and we've talked about technology and investment and development. Are there jobs associated with this transformation? Obviously it will be a big transformation and a big shift Are there jobs and and what are the sorts of jobs that might be associated with a newer, greener world? Mm, Look, definitely there are jobs collectively with the transition that needs to take place. And so perhaps the greatest evidence of that is the work that Beyond Zero Emissions has done on what we called a million jobs plan, which was essentially to demonstrate how that cleaner, greener growth could facilitate a huge amount of jobs. So it's not a case that we're losing jobs by transitioning away from our fossil fuel sector. It's more that we're creating different types of jobs for that new future. But if we think about it in the context of carbon projects, a lot of this activity does happen in regional areas and it does involve the employment of new people, whether that's actually people going out onto properties to to plant trees or other kind of project activities that take place that require people to do those activities. And I think another really important aspect as well that comes out of these carbon projects is opportunities for Indigenous communities or traditional owners to play a role. So there's been a lot of projects developed up in the northern part of Australia, which involve traditional burning practices that take place. So essentially what happens is that our savannah grasslands are deliberately put on fire earlier in the season so that we get a less intensive form of fire later in the season during the heat of the season and so by doing that we actually get less emissions going into the atmosphere and a lot of those projects are done on traditional owners land on native title land or with the involvement of the traditional owners in terms of the burning practices so again that's an amazing opportunity for employment in that particular sector. And it would probably be disingenuous of me not to say that's actually work that I have been involved with with some of those Aboriginal groups up in the Northern Territory and in Western Australia quite a few years ago now, but that might be something we have a little bit more discussion on on another episode because it's very interesting work. Are we seeing in countries that are a little bit further down the path in terms of some of this change, So you've mentioned the UK a few times where they've got a carbon price. I think the UK has taken their reductions down 
40% since 2006. I'll have to double check that fact, but that's my understanding. Are we seeing that their economy is growing or shrinking in relationship to that? Do we have a sense of the impact of that action on their economy? I don't have any facts or figures to hand, but it's certainly my understanding from all of the reading I've done that it's absolutely possible to grow an economy whilst still at the same time reducing emissions so that one is not to the detriment of the other. Certainly colloquially in some of the discussions I've had with people from the UK, they've talked to the huge economic transfer transformation that's been able to happen in certain parts of the country. So a wonderful example of that is the um, growth of offshore wind turbines. There's been whole sectors or areas of the country where industry is, if you like, coalesced around that opportunity. Those jobs have transformed to making the wind turbines and making all of the components and equipment and infrastructure that it's needed to support that particular industry sector. Really interesting and probably a good thing for us to try and do some digging and get the facts on what's the relationship between economic growth and some of these shifts. Final question for you. If you could pick one big thing that Australia should do that would safeguard our economic and environmental future, what would you advocate for? Probably not unsurprisingly because of some of the roles that I hold, I am a big advocate for a carbon price and transitioning to a market where it's not the taxpayers buying emission reductions, where it is actually translated into an economic requirement on business. I acknowledge that economic cost will then flow through to consumers. That is the premise of getting consumer change and getting new investment flowing into these new technologies that we need to have that price come in. So that would be my one big ask, but I do think also it is incredibly important to set that longer term target and to have that committed to by the federal government. And certainly I think we will increasingly as a country be left isolated if we um, don't take that step. Great. Okay. Very clear and a thoughtful explanation of why that would make sense. Thank you so much, Elisa, for your time. Excellent. Thanks, Diana. Thanks for helping us build common ground on climate. If you have a big idea all Australians can get behind, know someone we should talk to or want to join a respectful and pragmatic conversation about our future, please check out our website, commongroundonclimate.org.